This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, vaping for victory. But first up, here's the news. Manned missions to Mars? Last week, NASA made an unmanned test launch and recovery of its Orion capsule, which is the first step in NASA's plan for returning humans to the moon and perhaps eventually a mission to Mars. Orion has cost around $9 billion to develop. On the 5th of December 2014, after many delays, Orion launched atop a Delta IV heavy rocket from Cape Canaveral Space Center. Orion was launched on a two-orbit, four-hour test flight. The spacecraft reached a height of 5,800 kilometers, which is 15 times higher than the International Space Station. Orion made two passes through the Van Allen radiation belts orbiting the Earth before returning through the atmosphere to flirt down to the ocean on parachutes. The Orion flight test evaluated launch and high-speed re-entry systems such as avionics, attitude control parachutes and the heat shield. The heat shield reached 2200 degrees Celsius as the spacecraft re-entered the atmosphere at 32,000 km per hour. The craft is driven by 12-year-old PowerPC 750FX CPUs, to make sure the response to radiation is completely predictable. These were sold in the Apple iBook G3 in 2002. This makes the onboard computer less powerful than a 2014 smartphone. Orion has two of the old CPUs running the same software in parallel, so that one can error check the other. If the output doesn't match up, then the computer reboots. The Orion control panel looks more old school than the computer, with hundreds of switches to be flipped 1965 style. But in reality, it's just a big computer screen. NASA calls the interface glass because it's on a glass screen. However, this isn't a touchscreen because a touchscreen could be knocked by loose objects and because astronauts have to be able to operate it with gloved hands. Instead, astronauts have to use buttons on the edge of the screen to navigate through menus to pretend to flip the switch icons. Yes, my name is uh, Lee Morin, uh, MD, PhD, and I'm an uh, astronaut mission specialist. With Orion, the goal was to build a cockpit user interface, a dashboard, so to speak, that would allow the crew to control that spacecraft for that period of time for these deep space missions and to have the flexibility so that even if they were away from the planet for months or even years, that they would have the information they needed to fly that vehicle and return safely to the Earth. And the concept was to go with a glass cockpit, and what that means is that the 
instruments are all images on a computer screen. They are all on the glass. So rather than flipping a physical switch, the crew brings up a computer screen and flips a virtual switch, a little icon of a switch or icon of a valve. And with the exception of seven panels right around the computer screens, which have about 60 switches, that is all of the cockpit of Orion happens on the glass. One big benefit is a weight savings because you don't have to have a physical switch. And having a physical switch, not only is there the weight of the switch, but you also have the weight of the wire to the switch. And you have to have the weight of circuitry that takes that wire and feeds it into the vehicle computers. By putting that on the computer screen, you save that weight and you save the complexity of those wires. That gives us a lot of flexibility. And as we work with the cockpit, if we find certain ways that we could do it better, it's perhaps easier to update the software than it is to rewire the vehicle. It's been very exciting to see the Orion and the cockpit come together and to see the computer software that I've helped write and my colleagues have been writing come together. And I think that these are the screens that some, the first crew that goes to an asteroid will be looking at to help them control the vehicle. These are the screens that the first humans who go to Mars will be looking at as that mission unfolds in the decades ahead. The Orion is going to be the linchpin of humanity's exploration beyond low Earth orbit into deep space. I get a chill thinking about the role that I've had and the privilege I've had to be able to participate in that. The re-entry was watched in the control room through the camera of an unmanned aircraft drone launched from NASA's Armstrong Flight Research Center in California. The launch was scheduled for a day earlier, but high winds and then fuel and drain valves that wouldn't close made it necessary to delay. Engineers will evaluate the data recorded on the ground and on the spacecraft's onboard systems, including readings from 1,200 sensors placed throughout the crew module, to find out how all the elements of the spacecraft performed. Orion didn't carry any people into space during this flight, but it's designed to take astronauts on deep space missions in the future. It became the first spacecraft designed for humans to leave low Earth orbit since the Apollo 17 mission, which was the last moon landing by NASA. In contrast to Apollo and Orion, the space shuttle never went higher than low Earth orbit. Space historian Kerry Doherty had this to say. In some ways you can think of the Orion spacecraft as being Apollo on steroids because it's similar in many ways to the Apollo capsule, but, uh, but larger, able to carry a larger crew. The next spacecraft is being built to fly Exploration Mission 1 in 2017. It will also fly without astronauts on board, but it will make a much longer flight. Over three weeks, it'll go around the moon, carrying an operational service module to produce power and completing the first test of the gigantic Space Launch System rocket, now under development. Although the Delta IV can get Orion into high Earth orbit, the spacecraft will require the power of the SLS, the Space Launch System, to push it out into deep space. The third flight of Orion, the first manned mission, will take place no earlier than 2021, and could have four astronauts meeting up with an asteroid towed into orbit around the Moon by robots. Ultimately, Orion is planned to carry astronauts to an interplanetary ship that has yet to be designed or even given a date, the interplanetary ship, rather than Orion, would do the actual trip to Mars. Open access by nature? 
The esteemed journal Nature has been strongly criticised for its business model of taking the copyright for the publication of research it doesn't fund and charging people over $30 to download a single paper no matter how old it is. You have to pay before you can see whether the paper is the one you want. It stops public access to publicly funded knowledge. Nature's new policy has been announced as open access. But it's not really true. Nature doesn't make most of its money charging writers $30 a pop to read scientific papers. It makes its profits from charging huge sums for subscriptions to government-funded research institutions, universities, and large corporations. This leaves the rest of the world without real access to recorded scientific research. It's like nature is actually trying to be a gatekeeper on what scientific research reveals. Nature! Many universities have been working towards an open access publication policy. Earlier this year, the publisher asked researchers to violate their own institution's policies on public access to science by asking them for written waivers to their employers' policies. Otherwise, they wouldn't be published. Nature will now be offering its fully paid-up institutional subscribers a carefully protected URL that they can share with people who haven't paid. The URL will link you to an external website that will display in your browser the paper that the paid subscriber wants to share. The display will be protected against download or printing, which limits how useful it is. The problem with open access isn't really that people can't share on social media. Despite Nature's gesture in the direction of allowing researchers to obey government directives that taxpayer-funded research must be available to taxpayers, this is not open access. If you're not a member of a subscribing institution, then you can't go and read this copy-protected display on the Nature website. You have to wait for someone at some institution to read the article you want and then send you the link. Or you could beg them. If Nature doesn't smarten up and make science open to the public, particularly when most of the papers it's gatekeeping are no longer covered by copyright, then real open source journals like the Public Library of Science will eat their lunch. If you're a researcher who must share your work with taxpayers, then you can't continue to publish in a journal that won't allow you to obey your employer, no matter how esteemed the journal is. Scientists could switch to only publishing in open access journals, Readers could write to nature.com, write to your local political representative to ensure that taxpayer-funded research is available to taxpayers. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now the last Sydney Mini Maker Fair interview for 2014. Stanley Huang has been building open source hardware to get data from your car to your phone using Arduino microcontrollers. I spoke to him at the Sydney Mini Maker Fair at the Powerhouse Museum. And uh, I've been doing this vehicle telematics with open source hardware for about two years. And this is my first time being um, make a fair, and uh, I'm uh, I'm just uh, showing my work. That is about uh, using Arduino to get vehicle data and and uh, display them, and store them, and uh, transmit them to a mobile phone. And uh, I'm providing some kits and uh, parts 
for Arduino users to start with uh, a vehicle telematics project uh, more easily and uh, more freely uh, so they don't need an expensive device for getting data out of the car. So what sort of information are they getting from the car? The information includes uh, most about uh, the engine, the intake, the exhaust, and different temperature sensors. Because we attach GPS to the kit, so the GPS data can also be recorded together with the vehicle data. So some uh, comprehensive data analysis can be, can be done. Yeah. And what can you learn from analyzing the data from your car? This kit is mostly welcomed by some uh, racing people and they can know about how, how, how well their cars are performing and how well they, they are performing. For example, how, how do they enter a corner, how well speed they are entering a corner. And also for some people modify their car and they can see the, 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 the difference before and after the modification. Yeah. And for maybe for for normal drivers, they can they can see they can see some live data and so and also they can see the the travel code that indicates some uh, problem or uh, uh, malfunction of the car. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm uh, myself is a Arduino fan. I, I I'm uh, doing my work to extend this platform. And I hope it can be used in many, in more ways uh, that, that uh, and, uh, can connect to, to, to cars and, uh, and make, make, make the car more interactive and uh, interesting with other, you know. Yeah. And uh, I have an online store. Well, I, I provide all my kits and parts on, on my store. And, uh, and uh, you, uh, if you, you are interested in it, you can visit the website freematics.com. Thank you. Great. Well, Stanley Huang, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Stanley Huang with his open source hardware kits for monitoring all the information about your car. You can find out more at freematics.com. And now, vaping for victory. Is vaping more dangerous than smoking tobacco? Research from the Ministry of Health in Japan shows that some brands of electronic cigarettes can contain more than 10 times the cancer-causing compounds found in the smoke of tobacco leaf cigarettes. The government researchers used a vaping machine that takes 15 puffs from 10 e-cigarettes at a time. They found dangerous levels of formaldehyde and acetaldehyde in larger amounts than is found in cigarette smoke. Electronic cigarettes work by heating a liquid solution of glycerin and propylene glycol and various additives with a wire connected to a battery. The heat from the wire converts the liquid to vapour, which is inhaled. Some of the liquid is burned to smoke by contact with the hot wire. Most e-cigarettes have nicotine extracted from tobacco included so that they can be used as a cigarette substitute, and some just have flavours. A study by the American Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, found that some electronic cigarette fluid cartridges, advertised as being nicotine-free, did actually contain nicotine. Why wouldn't you slip in the same addictive drug that brings back your other customers? E-cigarettes go back at least as far as 1963 in America, but didn't take off worldwide until they were reinvented in 2003 by Chinese pharmacist Hon Lick. It's now a billion-dollar industry with big investments from tobacco companies. 
e-cigarettes have been advertised as a safe way for smokers to give up their addiction to tobacco. I've heard vapors claim that e-cigarettes are just a fun burst of flavour, which sounds like a direct quote from 1950s cigarette advertising. Really, is it so surprising that lungs which evolve for breathing air have the same kind of problem with hot flavoured vapour that it does with the smoke from burning leaves? Vaping doesn't paint your lungs with tar and ash, so electronic cigarettes are better than smoking in that regard. You also miss out on the carbon monoxide poisoning smokers suffer. However, many of the same harmful chemicals that are produced by burning tobacco also show up in electronic cigarettes, like nitrosamines. Nitrosamines are the chemical in bacon and other cured meats that can cause cancer. In one brand of electronic cigarette vapour, 10 times the amount of cancer causing formaldehyde was present than can be found in a cigarette of burning leaves. The release of the Japanese research has upset some people who vape electronic cigarettes. I found the same level of outrage that I remember from when smoking started becoming socially unacceptable, like children whose sweets were being confiscated. Some vapors are even claiming that the studies against vaping must be funded by big tobacco, without realizing that big tobacco is a big investor in e-cigarettes. On Facebook, a summary of the findings was published by a particular science news outlet, and many of the comments were people complaining that it's lies, and that they were unsubscribing immediately. I've also recently seen people who vape unhappy that rules were being passed to force them to vape outside with the smokers. Many vapors are certain that sucking in hot flavored vapor is natural and harmless fun. Research into smoking addiction has shown that as well as addiction to nicotine, the active drug in tobacco, cigarette smokers were also psychologically addicted to putting a tube in their mouth and sucking, as well as the visual of breathing out a visible cloud. Electronic cigarettes play to both of these triggers. A report from the American Center for Disease Control showed that teenagers who'd never smoked, who used electronic cigarettes, were twice as likely to start smoking tobacco as people who didn't use e-cigarettes. Vaping may introduce many more people to smoking than it helps to give up. Many people who've never smoked have been enticed to take up electronic cigarettes because of the idea that they're harmless. The number of vapors is rising. While many people who take up e-cigarettes do give up smoking, they only replace one addictive nicotine tube for another addictive nicotine tube, but without the ash and tar. Vaping also attracts smokers by being cheaper because it's untaxed. It's mainly the tar and tobacco smoke that kills people, so isn't a smokeless cigarette a lifesaver? Nicotine is implicated in heart disease and stroke. There are studies suggesting a strong connection between nicotine and head, neck, liver and kidney cancers. Nicotine is not a harmless addictive drug. However, the absence of tar is a big bonus for smokers. It must be a pretty attractive alternative. A Polish study has reported that the rise of young people smoking and vaping, what's termed dual use. In 2009, the World Health Organization issued a report that e-cigarettes are not an appropriate tool for smoking cessation therapy and that their safety has not been confirmed. In 2014, the World Health Organization released a report recommending that world governments regulate e-cigarette sale to minors and their use indoors be banned. What about secondhand vaping? The main component of e-cigarette vapor is propylene glycol, which is an irritant. This makes it dangerous for people with asthma to be near someone vaping. There are also cancer-causing carbonyl compounds that are produced in e-cigarette vapor, but not 
in tobacco cigarettes, such as glyoxyl and methylglyoxyl. Carbonyl compound, acrolein, causes irritation of the nasal cavity and damages the lining of the lungs. There's also lead and zinc in e-cigarette vapour at smaller levels than cigarettes, but higher than you'd really want. I wouldn't want to stand next to a vapour, although it's not as awful as smoke. The study analysed the vapour of 13 brands of Japanese electronic cigarettes, four of which didn't create any carbonyl compounds in their vapour. They found that not only did the content of the e-cigarette liquid affect the poisons produced in the vapour, but also the voltage of the battery in the electronic cigarette. Higher voltages caused more poisons to form. In Australia, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, has not approved e-cigarettes as a method of quitting smoking, which means it's illegal to sell them for that purpose. The TGA warned that the nicotine in liquid form can leak and be absorbed through the skin in dangerous amounts especially by children. Under Australian federal laws, you can legally buy the electronic cigarette delivery devices, but not the liquid vaping cartridges. Which is a little bizarre. People buy the e-cigarette cartridges and liquids on the black market, both online and under the counter at some tobacconists. Many of the online Australian e-cigarette websites, don't mention that importing the liquid to Australia is illegal. Electronic cigarettes are banned outright in Western Australia. Queensland recently passed a Tobacco Act, banning the sale of e-cigarettes to children, and banning their use in public places, and banning their advertising at retail outlets. Other studies show that hypertension, asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, lipoid pneumonia, cardiac arrhythmias, eosinophilic pneumonitis, congestive heart failure, disorientation and hypertension are considered to be caused by e-cigarette use. In Europe and the USA, electronic cigarettes are regulated as to nicotine content, labelling, advertising and sale to children. However, there's no regulation about what poisons the e-cigarettes can generate in their vapour. Outside of these countries, many governments are now looking at regulation. Should vaping be restricted to outdoors, the same as smoking, or should it be banned? Should it be legalised as a safer alternative to smoking while tobacco is banned? Right now, it looks harmful. And finally, here's a three-minute thesis. Here's Kelsey Kennedy introducing Kelly Sun at the University of Western Australia. We have Kelly Sun. Kelly is a PhD student in the Centre of Plant Energy Biology in the School of Chemistry and Biochemistry. And the title of her thesis is isolation of a new plant growth regulator signaling through the Chi2 protein. The title of her three-minute thesis is Decoding a Word in a Plant's Vocabulary. I wish I could talk to my plant friends in lab, just like I'm talking to you today. But unfortunately, they don't understand any of my words. Instead, they talk to each other all the time using chemical signals. Each signal is like a word in our language and different signals trigger different responses. Just like when I say, smile, you all smiled. <laughs> my research aims to find a verb in plant to germinate. By observing my plants and analyzing the gene modules, I've got evidence that they're using a specific signal to activate germination. But I don't know what it is, and can't ask them. So then, instead, I need to pick the signal out from all the chemicals plant produce. It's like picking out the word smile from all the words I've just said so far without knowing how exactly it sounds. Well, the strategy is simple. 
replay my talk and watch your reactions. The moment right before you smiled was when I said the word smile, correct? Yeah, but the reality is not that simple. Plants are producing thousands of chemicals, so it's way too noisy to pick out a single one from them. So I need to use fine chemistry tools to separate all these signals into different groups. I then play this signal to my plants group by group and try to catch their germination response. After the first round of selection, I can narrow it down to hundreds of signals, but it's not enough. I need to keep going with the separation, signal replay, and response check many more rounds until I can narrow it down to one signal that triggers germination. This tiny needle in the haystack is the word to germinate in plant. Now, with this word, what can we do? We can tell plant precisely when to germinate. This sounds quite simple, but it's powerful. Let me just give you one example in agriculture. We can play little tricks on the annoying weed species. We tell them to germinate, but at the wrong time of the year. So they'll die very quickly and make way for available crops. With more space and resources, our crops can make more food for us. But this type of immediate application is not the end of the story. My research is contributing to this large collection of plant signals. It's the plant vocabulary. Imagine one day this collection is big enough this static picture at my back will suddenly become more vibrant because we'll be able to understand what they are whispering there. And on top of that, we'll be able to talk back using a combination of chemical signals, just like I'm talking to you today, word by word. Thank you. You can find out more about the 3 Minute Thesis competition at 3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me emails so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2 XX in Canberra, and 3 MBR in Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, Radio On Demand and On The Go. Download the free app from Stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for photos and links about this week's show. I'm still in the process of putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion. I'm hoping it's only a few more weeks for me to shoot the video and put it up live. I'm looking at rewards for people who fund the show. Would you make a donation in return for hearing your voice on Diffusion? Send an email to science at diffusionradio.com and let me know what you think. Or make a donation directly by using the donation PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. 
Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. What makes the lightning? It's a story in rhyme Where the negatives and the positives make the heaven shine They were separated Then when they accumulated Got together and created Lightning Now every little raindrop has some electricity Both negative and positive electricity And when the little drops get tossed through the air The negatives and positives separate there The negatives and positives separate Go off to different places and accumulate The punches get bigger, the attraction gets stronger Till you just can't hold them back any longer Flash, a bunch of charges are off And as they streak through the air A mighty electric current sweeps through the air There's a heat and a flash As the charges dash between the clouds Or the clouds and the earth To join the opposite charges there Flash, crash That's lightning, brother, and that's positive What makes the lightning? It's a story in rhyme Where the negatives and the positives make the heaven shine They were separated, then when they accumulated Got together and created love